Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous Podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 127, and we're going to be interviewing Joseph C. How are you doing this morning, Joseph? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. So let's dive in here and get started. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. How was that? So growing up, I, I, I grew up in Waco, Texas. Um, I come pretty much from a broken home. Um, dad was good, loving parent, but my, my mother was a person who was living with multiple personalities, um, DID, borderline personality disorder. What's, what's DID? Like dissociative identity disorder, like, you know, can like dissociate, but still be moving around and doing things. Gotcha. Kind of like somebody who's able to have a, a blackout, like right off the rip without drinking any alcohol. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I grew up in, in Waco. Pretty nice town, you know. It's like Central Texas. Um, just, I don't know, like, you know, like I, I played football because that's what you do in, in Texas when you're a kid. Like, you know, I... I I did Boy Scouts, like, um, I was pretty involved with the church, I, I never really had that belief or that connection, but it was definitely, like, you know, somewhere I could go to, like, you know, get the steam off, like, um, from home. What do you mean from home? Just, just, um, you know, basically, you know, like, um, growing up, I was physically, sexually psychologically abused and tortured by my mother so that was all from your mom yeah 100 percent. you know I, I i even you know kind of started experimenting with substances very early like very 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 young like you know and um, how, old, how old were you when you first started well I, I started experimenting at like eight you know, like alcohol, um, weed. Uh, I had an incident when I was 10. That was like my first encounter with lysergic acid, LSD. So you started very, very young. Wow. Very, very young. Very young. And, and you know, like or, or just any way that I could escape, I would escape through reading. I would escape through comic books. I would escape just by being like you know outside so like you know escape was very much like a format like you know escape but also feeling false feeling false because like I would I would see other families and how they interacted and and would be confused at times like what what like if I said that to my mom I'd be in the hospital or you know, like really legitimately in the hospital, like not even joking around, like, you know, or I would see 
loving interactions. And I guess like what I would do is kind of personalize that, like, you know, like, um, these folks get, you know, love because they're worthy. I don't get love because I am who I am. Cause I would take on, you know, like, um, that kind of abuse within the, when the structure, like, you know, I, I made it my fault. Yeah. I completely understand. So what was your school life like during all this? I mean, up and down. I mean, I, I, I guess the best way to describe it was like, you know, like in, in general is that like my, my youth, my childhood wasn't really a childhood because I was really like, you know, at times fighting to survive. There were times where teachers tried to intervene, you know, and they couldn't, they couldn't do anything about it. And, you know, on the outside, like, you know, my mother, you know, in her younger life was a very, very powerful woman. She worked for Children's Miracle Network. She did campaign trail for the Clintons. She did, you know, a lot of things where like, you know, the veneer was very, very tip top, but, you know, through the course of it, like, you know, some of the the teachers would see, you know, but they couldn't, they couldn't really do anything about it you know, like, or they would kind of encourage me to talk, but there was, there was no way I was going to, you know, I think at one point it did get really bad, and, and I said something, and then, like, I just ended up recanting my statements, because it just wasn't worth the consequences that would, you know, fall down on the entire family, so, I, I, I mean, like, I like to, like, you know, draw in school, like, I, I like to, but really, like, I would escape. I would escape. I would do fine in school, but, you know, I could do fine in school without really making any effort, you know, and I didn't make effort because, like, I kind of adopted this, like, attitude of, well, you know, like, things are going to be shitty, like, you know, whether I perform or, or do the best or not, so I might as well just do it what I want. Yeah, makes sense. <clears throat> So your grades were good, you said? Yeah. Well, pretty good for somebody that's not, like, you know, applying themselves. I mean, it could have been better, you know, but, like, I, I got by, you know? I could get A's and B's, like, you know, but I, I, it, it wasn't my main priority ever. I never, you know, had the understanding that school could be a way out. It was just the next thing that I would arrive to. Yeah, school can definitely be a way out. If you do good in school, you can find your way into a new life. And, you know, like, like having that, that lesson, like, you know, later on when, you know, my little sister started to kind of hit those crucial formative years, I pressed it and pressed it and pressed it and said, this is your ticket. Like, you know, you don't have to go down the path that I did. This isn't even about lecturing. This is about the difference between whether you're going to be the boss or, or, you know, you're not, you know, like you want to be able to be empowered. And, and she ended up, she ended up, cause there was stuff that happened, you know, later, but I guess we could get into it a little bit later. Yeah. We'll get into it. So 
as you progressed, did you graduate high school? No, um, literally, like, I, I got my GED, I went and, and took the test while I was blowing crack in between tests out in the parking lot. So I would go do a portion of, of the test, and then I would go and, and, and hit crack in the parking lot, and then I would come in and do more of the test, and I did my entire GED that way. I got kicked out of school, like expelled um, by the time I was a sophomore. And then when they tried to put me in alternative school, I ended up, you know, getting in trouble to where I was not welcome at any of the alternative schools in the greater Tucson TUSD district. <laughs> what did you do? So um, the first day of alternative school, like the principal was trying to like yell at me and I was like, you know, like, you're not my mom or dad, don't, don't yell at me. He was telling me to turn my shirt inside out or something. And I spit on him. Cause he's just like, you know, he's like, don't, don't raise your voice at me. What are you going to do? And I'm like, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, let's fight. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer too. So like, you know, I'm, I'm 42 and I, I come from that era where like we had corporal punishment in the school still. And I was frequently in trouble, but like, you know, the, the paddle was nothing compared to like what I was used to. So it was like humorous to me. Don't get me wrong, it hurt, but it was still humorous compared to anything I was facing. What kind of stuff would actually happen in the house? Um, inappropriate physical contact and like torture. I don't want to go too, too like in depth into the nitty gritty, but like, you know, essentially like it would get so bad. Like I would fear for my life often. Must've been a scary feeling. Absolutely. But it also introduced me to a feeling that like I would later feel toward the end of my addiction. And it's like the combination of like terror and boredom which is like the worst combination, you know, that I've experienced to this state. You know, later on when I was getting clean, it was like, before I was getting clean, it was like I was starting to, you know, get to a bad point where I was experiencing terror and boredom. And it's like, this is just, it, it, it kind of helped like the, the click on come, if that makes any sense. So what did you do after you graduated high school? Or I'm sorry, you got your GED. So basically, you know, this is this is really, you know, how school went. So like basically in when we were in Waco still, the Branch Davidian thing happened. Yeah. And my dad got really angry. He had already been frustrated with his his boss and not really liking the situation with his work situation and then when this thing happened he was just like this is this is disgusting you know like these people just killed these people they could have just pinched the guy when he came into town this is ridiculous and we're getting out of here and so we're we're moving to tucson 
so we moved to Tucson. I'd done junior high there for like, you know, the last part of junior high. I'd done high school for, you know, ninth grade and then the beginning of 10th grade. In the beginning of 10th grade, I was kind of on a rip, like shoplifting liquor. I got caught. I admitted to it and they expelled me. And basically, I just started going kind of downtown, just doing more of what I was doing already while I was in junior high school and high school, just kind of escalated, you know, so I would just, I would go get high every day, I would, I would hustle, I would, you know, kind of make little deliveries or do, you know, whatever I could. Um, And really, I just started getting into that, like being a street urchin and learning that life it's kind of crazy because like you know you really have just a few options like you can either be like you know like a a hustler a, a dealer a stick-up kid or a sex worker and so you know I really kind of fell into the um stick-up kid category and, and hustler category you know and so that's what I was doing I mean and I really just got the GED a moment when I had about two or three weeks sober. Um, I'd come out of some program and my dad's like, oh, I got this GED test set up for you. So you at least have that. And I'm like, sure, I'll go to that. And he's like, you, you don't look well. And I'm like, I'll be fine. And then that was like, I was telling you, it was just, you know, kind of smoking crack and taking my GED. <laughs> So were those, was that the only drug you were using? No. So um, I started really heavily with alcohol. Okay. At, at 12 alcohol and then whatever I could, like if somebody came through with something, I would, I would get it. Uh, inhalant sometimes, but more like um, nitrous, you know, like crackers, things like that. But when I got in trouble, like when I was barely a sophomore in school, my dad, you know, we'd, we'd kind of separated from my mom for a while and he got a guy to look after me. He looked after the kids in the, the apartment complex. He seemed like a good dude. He'd worked at the local psych facility for years. Like he babysat a lot of the kids. The thing that my dad didn't know was that this man was a compulsive gambler and a crackhead of the highest order and basically um I come to his house one day I was just smoking weed at that time and doing liquor sometimes pills sometimes whatever but then we got to talking and he's like well you know that stuff you're doing ain't shit why don't you try this and then I tried the crack and I was addicted instantly and you know kind of went from being like an experimenter to being somebody who was like full-fledged like, this is what I'm doing. Um, by 14, it was IV drug use, methamphetamine, heroin, uh, whatever I could, I could do. Like, you know, I would get MDMA and I would break it down in lemon juice because real MDMA is not water soluble. And then I would shoot lemon juice and mix MDMA into my vein in order to get the rush. Essentially, like, the main thing I needed to do is have the rush because it's kind of like alcoholics describe a sense of ease and comfort when they take a few drinks. I would get the sense of ease and comfort by going way overboard and then getting that rush. And so I would chase it. 
and it's really like it, it became like the only thing that mattered. The young age of shooting up stuff. It's just like it was a different time then too. You know, like um I'm not saying that the kids on the street don't do it now, but I think it's probably a little bit less prevalent than like how it was in the eighties and nineties because it was like everybody was shooting up, but the consequences were different. So, I mean, like, it's like what we're seeing now, um, the consequences are actually greater, you know, like than when I was doing it because we have fentanyl in a pill form and hell you can just smoke it lick it or touch it and if it's too potent you'll die so that's a very different format you know but i just gotten around very weird very um dysfunctional people at a young age but it was safer than some of the places that i had been you know like um i'd gone to treatment there was like pedophiles working at the treatment center um I went to treatment when I was 13, my first treatment center. There was, you know, a couple of grown men carrying on trying to have a relationship with one of the little 14-year-old girls in there. And I remember, you know, getting out of that program and being like, these guys are lame. This is lame. Like, you know, these guys are talking recovery. They're lames. Because if you're a big grown-ass man trying to have a relationship with a 14-year-old, you're lame. Like, you know, in my estimation. And I, I went back to kind of the safety of like the motorcycle club and the street people um some of the other people i was hanging out with and 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 you'd be surprised some of the places that were safe people wouldn't think they were safe like you know i fell in with some bdsm people who never propositioned me never got weird they'd be like hey kid you want to you know come and watch cartoons and hey you know you might want to slow down on some of that stuff you need some of this food and that was just my experience with like that community. Like, you know, I was kind of safe with them, but being transitory, right. In nature, everything changes and it changes quickly. Things started to like, you know, escalate um, quite a bit, even from that, you would already think, Oh, it's, it's escalating. But I mean, it, it escalated because I had to start doing a lot of crime in order to supply my habit and to supply um my tolerance for things and what kind of stuff were you doing i mean god like um protection um robberies um planning the job um dealing you know like at one point like you know i was i was one of the main people like bringing ketamine into the country um i'd even invented a couple methods that nobody had ever used before to you know get it in and then just really any anything i could do right like you know like i mean my whole attitude was i'm committing felonies today like and if you're not committing felonies then we can't hang because i don't want you to rat on me for all these felonies i'm committing and i'm not a rat so i don't have anywhere to go i have to do my time and and really it was just escalation escalation my brain always worked that way you know i remember when um dare came to the school and they were trying to do shock us that day and they had shown 
you know, kids that had died on nitrous tanks. And I remember saying, let me see that picture. And I'm like, oh, it's, it's the blue tank with the little yellow line and the red line. Those are the medical grade ones. And they're like, huh? And I'm like, nothing. Hmm. That night, I'm cutting a fence because I knew exactly where some tanks were. I've been like looking. I've been looking at them for a long time, but I just didn't want to grab the racing nitrous as opposed to the medical grade nitrous. So Dare actually helped me out there because that was how my brain just, it was like a clickety clack of like, you know, how can I get high? How can I get there? How can I get there? So what did you do? So as far as, you know, your life and employment and trying to just be self-sustaining, how was that? I mean, I, I worked some restaurant jobs. I did some construction, but then, you know, that all, that all really fell to the wayside. You know, I mean, it's really important for me, you know, to always remember where I came from because recovery gave me the format to make my living. Recovery gave me, you know, my livelihood. It gave me the ability to, you know, um, have a relationship um, to be able to struggle, you know, because before that, I would just, I would just fail. I would just nuke everything because my whole lifestyle and my system was transitory. You know, so I, I, I worked some jobs here and there. There was one job that was a little different. I worked at like a, a Fantastics. I don't know if you're familiar with Fantastics, but it's like a place that's got golf carts and and stuff and like you know kids rides and even then like you know and this was like before things got really horrible but even then things were pretty horrible enough right so it was like coming in there hungover or you know drunk with like a couple rolls of mentos and somehow, like, you know, parents would, like, request me because, like, their kids liked me at this place. And I'd be, like, you know, basically, like, the Billy Bob Thornton of, like, Fantastics, you know. It was, like, quite unmanageable. Um, and, you know, since I've gotten clean, I've had, like, a couple of, of different, like, little odd jobs. But the majority of them have been in recovery or psych. It's good that you're giving back. So, I mean, if we don't, like, you know, where does that put us? You know, when I forget, like, you know, things get kind of, kind of rough. And I want to grow in effectiveness and understanding, right? Like, you know, like all of this stuff about like, you know, the needle or things that I did or, you know, I don't want to go back to that lifestyle, nor do I want to be in that mentality. Because you can be in that mentality and not be getting high at all. So let's talk about recovery a little bit. When did you first say to yourself, I have a problem. I need to address this problem. Well, I said that to myself about five or six years before I got clean, right? But then, like, there was a certain point where I just leaned into it. Like, okay, like, I'm going to die. And then, you know, essentially, you know, like, my hustle had become shopping cart, dumpster dive, rob drug dealers. Rob people that just, because, like, 
I wanted to kind of do my felony like right on site. You know what I mean? Like get high right on site after my felony. Like, you know, like if we're doing this and we're going to, we're just going to rip him up and then we're going to get high on site. And they're like, dude, isn't that a little like reckless? And I'm like, he's, he's zip tied in a chair. What's he going to do? Like, you know, we got the room. (laughs) Cause I was just really at that point. And I was, I was planning one of those. I was at a a hippie house and they kind of, they kind of kept me around like a pit bull because I would scare the lesser tweakers off and they got along with me. And so I was at this place and I remember my friend, Melissa, she was, um, she was snorting rails of K off a plate. And she's like, you know, if you keep going the way you're going, Joe, you're going to die. And then I got like really mad. I'm like, dude, the nerve of her. And like, everybody was sleeping. Um, I was planning this, this run up, you know, and that's exactly what it is. Like, you know, I just run up into the door. Like, you know, I, I hit them with something. I, I take their stuff, you know, and sometimes I zip tie them or duct tape them up. And um, I'm planning this run up. However, my feet are really blistered from like walking around, being in on time, like, you know, wandering, like tweaking that kind of thing. So I have like a pretty gnarly case of the crack foot and I'm just trying to get all the blisters down. I got my feet in Epsom salt. And um, I um, I want to get geared up, right? So I decided to put in some Tupac because I'm just going to play hit him up. Then I'm going to go in this dude's house. Like he was, he was, and also I like to rob like really scummy people because that was how I justified it or rationalized it in my mind. Cause yeah. I'm like, no, that dude's a straight up borderline chomo. Like, you know, if anything, I'm doing a community service and keeping the community happy off in his home and I rob him. And so I'm getting ready and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to play some hit him up and then I'm going to do it. His blisters are almost broke. And um, I hear her crying. Now I'm like looking for the CD, right? Because I want to drown her crying out. But I hear her crying and she's crying about me. And usually people would do that and I couldn't feel it. I couldn't feel anything in here. But I I started feeling it. And then like, you know, we've all had that day where we're having a perfectly good day. Maybe we're watching some TV. Sarah McLaughlin comes on fucking puppy commercial and it's like, it's a puppy with its eye out. And you're like, dude, that just ruined my day. Yeah. I pop a CD in and it's Sarah McLaughlin and she's like I'm like this isn't hit him up the lyrics to the song were do we burn in heaven like we burn down here I had a vision of my death I had a vision of my father's death as a result of my death and instead of looking at the bottom in that moment I just looked up it wasn't about a bottom you couldn't threaten me with consequences like you know because I'd lived on the bottom since I was a small child like I just looked up and I realized people were like living like way better lives and existences than than I was and I was like well maybe that could be me so I went to the detox that I had been to for the 86th time you see detox used to be a place where I would wake up after an overdose or be a place to you know get a meal or a shower real quick and then leave. Um, I woke up there many times completely disoriented because like TPD would have to revive me. And so now I went and they're like, I'm like, I need help. And they're like, yeah, right. And I'm like, dude, I'll, I'll go to the meeting. And they're like, what? Yeah, I'll go to the meeting and I'll make my bed. And they're like, you never said that before you get in here. 
<laughs> and then like I ended up in a three-quarter house that was for chronic relapsers. Um, the requirement was to get a sponsor and to work the steps. I started doing this, like, you know, it's like 90 and 90. I did about 290, 390. Um, I started actively working steps. Like, you know, I started getting involved um, in just doing service work. And that's how people started to kind of know me in the recovery community. And then that's kind of how I started, like, my whole wild ride with, like, working in treatment, working in the recovery rooms, doing different things, you know. And that was that day that I went to detox. That was March 6, 2005. Like, you know, I'm 17 years sober. Um, AA and you know like other 12-step folks like you know from different fellowships they raised me you know like um people from na people from dharma people from churches like you know like what what started to happen is when i stood up for myself people started to stand with me my life started to change radically a great way of putting that So what are you doing nowadays with your life? I work for a program called Seven Arrows. We're a primary substance use disorder. Like what we do best is treat substance use disorder. And what we do is we use Native American philosophy. We use um, equine assisted learning. We use um, the traditional evidence-based practices because addiction takes you off your center. And so we, we utilize these things to center people, okay? It's a cool place. It like sits on 160 acres. It's only a 16 bed facility and there's 30 horses there for the, the clients. And it's a truly remarkable place. And I kind of lucked out like, you know, being able to work there. You know, I was doing um, first responder psych before that, which is kind of wild. <laughs> like, you're having to fight a lot, you know, like, um, thank God for like Brazilian jiu-jitsu and things like that, um, which is something that I also do. Like, you know, my professor, he's actually, you know, in recovery, has been with me like through the gate. Essentially, there's a group of us that kind of formed and we've all been in each other's life for like, you know, many years. And so we have a village. Now, all of us have families and different projects and stuff like that. Um, however, we do, we do keep in touch with each other, you know. So essentially, I, I reach out to people. I help people get into treatment, whether they're going to come to my facility or not. Um, I'm just like a pretty much like a resource person. That's great because people need the resources. That's what I try to try to do with Addicts Anonymous. It's just make it, you know, place for resources to help. And this is part of it. How long have you been doing this podcast? Not long. We started sometime around December. Awesome. Yeah. But we've gotten a couple thousand, a little more than a few thousand uh downloads and list listens and watches so we're slowly growing but it's a it's a process i'm looking at like a five-year plan for the group. right 
I totally get that. I totally understand. Yeah, I know I can do it or we can do it, but it's going to take time. Absolutely. So another question for you, it's usually my last question is, do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Yeah, like, you know, like, um, the biggest thing I can say is that anything that you put before your recovery, you will lose. Like, if you put your recovery first, you're going to be in a better spot. But if you're an addict or an alcoholic like me, it's not just about substances. Like, substances are a symptom. Like, you know, what we really have is a way of thinking, right? And if you kind of couple that with trauma, which most people in, in you know, like, I, I've said this and I'm emphatic about this. I think trauma is the gateway drug. You know, um, I don't think it's cigarettes. I don't think it's alcohol. I don't think it's weed. I think trauma is the gateway drug that kind of leads to all things that might be poison, you know? And so it's like you have a responsibility, you know, to maintain that recovery and put that recovery first. However, if you do that, all of the areas and things in your life will be good as a byproduct. And I've tried to steer away from that philosophy or, well, let's just see how this works. And nope, it's fundamental. It's fundamental for a clean and sober person. The other thing I would say is like, you know, I mean, dude, like I, I had this crazy drug story, right? And I don't even like to get too deep into it. You know, there was, there was like, you know, there's people that I, I work for that have been on like, national geographic locked up abroad and stuff and and like you know like just like seriously scary people it doesn't do good for a dinner you know conversation when you're meeting parents and maybe you want to marry their daughter and those parents aren't in some type of program right like if we talk about our thoughts and our feelings more and kind of just use like the story as like, you know, a platform or a device to talk about our thoughts and feelings. I feel like more people will be reached, especially if we are doing those things like putting our recovery first and, um, you know, maintaining, maintaining, because I, I feel like everybody comes into, you know, recovery for broken heart. And so it's like, what are you going to do to build that back up? And a lot of times no one can build it back up for you. You got to be like the sole person, like doing the work. There will be help along the way, of course, but we're responsible for repairing our broken hearts. That's good advice. So do you have anything else that you want to throw in there? Um, you know, like, um, I just want to say that, like, like um, Arizona's beautiful. Seven Arrows, where I'm at, is beautiful. You know, like, we're more kind of, like, spiritual. Um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the program of AA for saving my life. I'm grateful for people who worked in recovery that have nothing to do with a 12-step fellowship that kind of helped me along the way and started standing with me when I stood up for myself. 
Um, I'm grateful for you, Jim, um, for, for having me. And I'm grateful for everybody that might be having a really, really, really fucking hard time because they're starting their recovery today. And, and, you know, it's just keep coming, keep reaching out, um, keep talking to the people that like, you know, have a light in your eyes and that light will soon be yours. It's very nice. It's a great way to put it. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. How do you feel? I feel great. It's great. Yeah, I love doing this. So for everybody watching and listening, like what you heard and saw, go below, give us a like. Also click subscribe. You'll be able to see when we upload new videos. You can check us out on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Uh, we also have our website that is addicts-anonymous.com. There you'll find a bunch of resources as well as a bunch of our literature. So you can type on, or I'm sorry, click on the approved literature tab and you'll see all the stuff we have available for free. So that's all I have for today. And until next time.